If you're opening up your pew Bible, um, it's page 857. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom with whom he is pleased. Luke 2, if you have a copy of God's Word there, let me encourage you to do that. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats, it is page 857. We're going to be also going to John's Gospel, John 16, so if you want to start making your way over there, uh, we will get there in just a few minutes. I think most of you know that Christmas is my absolute favorite time of year. Uh, I love summer. I love the warm temperatures, and I love, um, you know, the longer days and the sunlight and things like that. Uh, But man, there's something about Christmas season that it's just, it just makes it my favorite time uh, of the year. And, you know, holidays in general have an effect on us. They affect our moods and, and uh, just our lifestyles and decisions and things like that that we have to make. Um, but there's also, like I said, in, in, our, in our temperament or uh, how we're feeling, uh, how these can bring up happiness uh, as we think about this Christmas season. I told you that this is my favorite time of year. I, I think of many many, many happy memories uh, during the Christmas season, maybe when I came home from college or in high school or whatever. And even now, we, we typically go back uh, after our Christmas Eve service and, and visit my parents and just a lot of happy memories. I remember one year in the Scott uh, family Christmas gathering, uh, we had brought uh, one of those Wii's. Remember the Wii's? And uh, had the, the board with the, the Wii sport games and stuff. And, and we had tournaments and things like that uh, all Christmas break. It was just great. And, and we, you know, my mom was surprisingly good at the downhill skiing game, you know. I mean, that was a, a, a fun thing to see all of us trying to beat each other's records. So when I think of Christmas, happiness comes up, you know, a holiday like that. 
Um, nostalgia is, a, is another word that comes to my mind. I, I, maybe you'll remember uh, there was a commercial for many years, right around the Christmas season, where uh, it was Folgers, right, Folgers, and uh, the college student would come home and to surprise his mom and dad, and then his younger sister was down in the kitchen. Some of you are nodding your head. You remember this one, right, okay? And it's just, you see that, you just kind of feel warm, right? You kind of feel, you know, just like, that's really nice, you know, that's really great, you know? Uh, they didn't show that probably, you know, the brother and sister were fighting 10 minutes later, but that's beside the point. It's nostalgia, right? But also sadness. Sadness is another uh, feeling or emotion that sometimes comes over us during holiday seasons. Uh, you know, this could be, and I know it is actually, uh, the first Christmas season for some of you without a loved one. And as a pastor, uh, that's not lost on me. And I, I pray for very specific people during the holiday season because I know that um, this could be the first, or even if it's not the first, uh, sometimes, you know, when you think of uh, a Christmas season without a loved one, it can be difficult even for many years after the death of that loved one. And so there's a lot of feelings, and we can keep going, and we can keep, you know, talking about how the holidays affect us. And that's really what this Advent series is about for the next four weeks is what we're going to be talking about is how that the incarnation should have unique effects on the follower of Jesus Christ, okay? And so if I was going to summarize what I'm hoping to communicate over the next four weeks, it'd be that, that the incarnation should have unique effects on the, on the life of a Christian, okay? So let me define incarnation, though, real quickly there. So maybe that's not a term that you're used to hearing. Incarnation is simply what we refer to as when Jesus Christ became man, okay? It was incarnate. He became, he took on a body. Jesus Christ existed from eternity past, and he will exist uh, forevermore. Um, this was, uh, he, is, he is God, okay? He is part of the Trinity. And so, uh, you know, before that first Christmas day, Jesus was still, Jesus had existed, right? But that there was a big change in that time is when he became uh, took on the, the form of a human, and he took on a human body, and he was born of uh, the Virgin Mary, and you know this is what we're celebrating this time of year. So that's what we're talking about when we say the incarnation. That's a, the, the, the time when Jesus Christ became man, and then he lived that perfect life of obedience, died the unjust death, rose again on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. That whole him bringing the body, uh, taking on uh, human flesh, that's what we mean by the incarnation. And so this event shows should have tremendous effect on the life of uh, the, the believer of Jesus Christ. So, you know, this Luke 2 passage was read to us, and we're just going to use this as kind of an introduction uh, to what we want to talk about today. And you notice that this was talking about the shepherds there. And it's interesting that, uh, that the, this message was given to the shepherds first. I, I've, I've taught on this before here, I know, is that, that the, the shepherds, they were considered in that day as very untrustworthy, okay? These were people that they were not even allowed to testify in court. So if there was a crime that was committed and your witness was a shepherd, then the, their, their testimony was, was not valid in court, okay? Because they were considered untrustworthy in that day. And so it's interesting that the gospel, really, this message of the gospel, of, of this news, this good news, that's what gospel means, of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, it's interesting that that's given to, first, to social outcasts in the day. I think there's maybe perhaps some foreshadowing over the gospel message there. 
But I want you to notice in verse 10 how quickly the shepherds moved from fear to praise in such a short time. So actually in verse 9, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. And so they start, when they hear the, the angelic message and they see them first, they're filled with fear. And, and I don't fault them for that at all. I would be afraid as well. But I just want you to notice how quickly they move from fear to praise. So here in verse 10, the angels tell them, don't be afraid. In verse 15, it says, and when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So we have them afraid. The angel tells them not to be afraid. And then he says there that in verse 10, it will be good news of great joy for all the people. So now they've moved from being afraid. Now they're moving to responding in faith. And then look at verse 20. It says, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. That word glorifying and praising God. So they heard, they responded in faith. Then they left changed individuals praising God. There was a quick change there from being afraid to praise. And what was between those two emotions? Really joy. They they got the news, the good news of great joy, it says there in verse 10. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how that joy should be the natural response to the incarnation, okay? Joy should be a natural response to the good news of Jesus Christ, particularly if you're a follower of Christ. When we think of this, when we celebrate this, when we read about this, joy should fill our souls. So I want to discuss two points this morning quickly, if I could, and uh, that would be that uh, really understanding joy. So I'm going to ask, what is joy and where does it come from? So we want to talk about that. And then this idea of finding joy. Uh, Joy seems elusive, does it not? Uh, sometimes we, we long for joy in our lives, but it feels like we just can't get it. So we're going to look at understanding joy, and then we're going to look at finding joy in our time together today. So let's look, first of all, at understanding joy. So when we're talking about joy, what are we talking about? And, and some of you have heard messages on this so many times, and, and some of you are, are already thinking, okay, I know the difference between joy and happiness, and one of them is this idea here is that joy rises above circumstances, okay? And so uh, one of the thoughts is, is that happiness is kind of contingent upon the circumstances of life, whereas joy rises above that, and that is true, and that's definitely something we need to keep in mind if we're going to understand what joy is, Okay. And it does rise above the circumstances. Um, We can actually have a positive disposition, and we can see beyond the immediate circumstances if we're believers in Christ. And the incarnation is at the center of that. And that's what we're going to get to in just a few minutes here. Um, One author, he defines joy this way. He says, joy is a delight that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Okay? It's a delight that runs deeper than pain or pleasure or pleasure. So we have delight, but pain or pleasure doesn't uh, affect that 
delight. Now, it's not saying, then, joy, that we have to love every circumstance. It's not saying that we have to really enjoy every nuance of life. That's not what we're saying in order to be joyful. But there needs to be a, a deep-rooted delight in our soul that, that pushes beyond the delight or the, the suffering or, or the pain or the pleasure, excuse me, that delight needs to go deeper than the pain or the pleasure. You know, one verse that maybe many of you are thinking about right now is James chapter 1, right? James chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, you know, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James there is instructing a group of believers who are spread across and in the dispersion. They're going through difficult times. And he says, listen, you need to count it joy when you go through any of these circumstances that you're writing me about, that you're talking about, the difficulties of life. You need to count it joy. And he's going to go on, and it's not our purpose today to go through that text, but that might be a good text for you to read later on in James chapter 1. But you would see there, what if and when you do that, you will see that what James is doing there is he's showing that the trials that God allows in our lives, particularly for the Christian, they're, they're never without purpose. They're never, they're, they're, they're never without warrant. And, and it's, it's not necessarily tied to a sin or something like that, but it, it is a, it is a, there's a goal in mind for God to use whatever difficult circumstances we're going through. And, and we need to look beyond that. We, we need to see, okay, look beyond the difficulty of the, the, the terrible job situation or, or the conflict or, or whatever we're going through here or the financial burden or, or the marriage difficulty or the tension uh, uh, at home or, or whatever difficulty that you're dealing with. As a Christian, we need to be able to look beyond that, Right? Because this is what joy is. Joy says, okay, I'm not saying that we have to like everything that we're going through. We're not doing a happy dance every time we get bad news, right? But we have to be able to see beyond that. So joy rises above circumstances. And, and the greatest example of this is Jesus, right? In, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And here, Jesus is the greatest example of this, is that it was a joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. We know that this wasn't something that Jesus absolutely, in his humanity, was looking for, forward to, right? We, we know in the Garden of Eden, uh, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has said, wrong garden there, uh, Jesus had said he was praying to the Father, he says, if there be any other way, may this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, right? In his humanity, the incarnation that we're talking about, there was tremendous conflict in Jesus about everything that he was about to do. And it wasn't necessarily just the pain and suffering that he was going to endure. It was the cross. And the cross is, 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 is symbolic in the scriptures of more than just the, the physical pain. The cross is when all of the sin was placed upon him. And most importantly, God the Father had to turn his back on the Son in that moment. So that, so that Jesus could pay for our sins here. You see, it was joy for Jesus to do that, even though he didn't want to do it, even though he says, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was joy, according to Hebrews, for Jesus to do this because of what he knew, that there was a greater delight in bringing people to salvation. There was a greater delight that he had in his purpose, in his being, that he was going to bring salvation and forgiveness of sins. And that's what it says in Hebrews 12. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And so joy rises above circumstances, and we see this, what we're called to do. We see this in the example of Christ. Now, you, you may be saying, okay, I'm tracking with you. I get that. I see the difference between that. But what else about joy? I, I, it's still a little bit fuzzy in my mind. And, and I, we could spend a long, long time discussing this topic. But let me just share one other aspect about joy that will, that will help you uh, and help me understand uh, this a little bit better. And that is this, is that joy is grounded in and flows from God, okay? This is what we need to understand. Joy it rises above circumstances, so where does it come from then? It is grounded in and flows from God. This is a very important uh, uh, theological truth here. Uh, the, the Bible really gives us uh, every person in the Godhead, okay? So if you're uh, the Godhead, when we talk about that in the Scriptures, or the Trinity that the Bible teaches, even though the Bible doesn't use that specific word, the, the, the teaching is there. So we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, okay? We're not talking about three separate gods, okay? This is where the mind-bending part about God comes in, right? Is that we have three distinct persons who are equally God, okay? And they are one God. Okay, you're like, okay, that doesn't make sense. I know, I know, okay, all right. So we've got the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, okay? This is what the Bible teaches, and this is what we've got to accept it. And if, if you're wrestling with that, let me just give you one thing to, to think about in this, because I've, I've tried to make sense of this. I could give you some good material to read through and talk about it if you, if you would like to study this a little bit more. But I will just say this, is that Understand that a God that could be comprehensibly understood by human mind isn't truly worthy to be worshipped by a human then. And so we have to understand that God is transcendent and God is greater than us. If we could fit God into all of our rational thinking, then why are we worshipping him? That's just one thing to consider if this is tripping you up here in your faith journey. But God, the Bible teaches us very clearly that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But notice in the, these texts I'm going to show you in, verse, in Psalm 1611, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's talking about God the Father there. And he says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. And so this is why I say it's grounded in and flows from God. If we're going to truly have joy in our lives, it has to come from God. God, but not just the Father, we see in the Son. In John 15, 11, it says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is Jesus talking here in John chapter 15, that my joy may be in you. This is something that he wanted. This was the reason why he lived the life on the earth that he did. This is the reason why he had the ministry that he did, is because he wanted his joy to be in his followers, okay? This is the reason why he went to the cross. This is the reason why he rose from the dead three days later and ascended in heaven is because he wanted his joy to be in you and that our joy would be full. This is what Jesus is talking about. So we have the Father, we have the Son, and now we have the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and then the text goes on. But we see there that, it, that this joy comes from is rooted in and flows from God in every uh, uh, person of the Trinity. Now, the reason why I'm making this point is because we're trying to understand joy, that we need to first understand that it's something, it's a delight that rises above circumstances, pain or pleasure, okay? 
But also, it's not something, what I'm trying to communicate with this point, is that it's not something that we just conjure up, right? It's not something that you walk away from this worship service today and say, you know what? I'm going to be more joyful, okay? I'm going to do it. I'm going to be joyful, 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 okay? Now, we, you need to maybe make that decision. You need to maybe realize the importance of joy in your life. But the theological truth is that it's grounded in God and flows from God. So that leads us to the second point then this morning, and that is finding joy, okay? So this is where I, I want you to go over to John chapter 16, okay? John chapter 16, if you will. It's page 902 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided for you there. Now, this is a text of Scripture that you may be thinking, well, I have never, ever heard an Advent sermon from John chapter 16, all right? Um, well, you know, there's a first time for everything, right? Okay? Um, so we're going to talk about this idea of finding joy. The first thing that we need to understand is that joy is really promised to Christians, to those who follow Jesus. That's what we mean by Christian that joy is actually promised to. We just saw a text of Scripture, right, where it said in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right? It's saying that the evidence of the Spirit at work in our lives that is going to produce love in our lives. It's going to produce joy in our life. It's going to produce patience in our life. Now, this is not saying that we're going to be doing this perfectly all the time. But there should be a trajectory of growth in our lives. So if you look at how long you've been a Christian, there should be a, a, a pattern of growth in these areas. Now, we like to see a very straight line in our growth patterns, right? Okay? And, or maybe I should do it this way since it's backwards, okay? So you like to see a, a straight line. The reality is, is when you, when you zoom out, that's what you would see. But if you zoom in on your day-to-day -day life, you would probably see more like this, right? <laughs> okay? Um, up and down. And, and, and that's okay because we are sinners in progress, and God is doing a work in our life of changing us to be more like Christ. That's what we call sanctification, coming more like Jesus Christ and growing in our spiritual life. So, yeah, I'm not saying that today you have joy and tomorrow you don't, so then, okay, then the Spirit of God is not at work in your life. How do you respond to those moments when you don't have joy? You see, a lot of times the Spirit of God then gently presses on us and says, hey, wait a minute, where's your joy? He you say, oh, you're right. You're right. We ask God to forgive us, and we, put, we fix our eyes upon Christ, and then we have that growth pattern, okay? And so finding joy... The first thing to understand is that this is, this is something that's promised to us. So I, I ask you to go to this John 16 text. Let me read this to you. John 16, verse 16, it says this. A little while, this is Jesus talking, a little while and you will see me no longer. Let me, let me just stop. I should have done this first. This is at the end of Jesus' life here. Okay, this is at the end of his time on earth. So in John chapter 13, he has washed the disciples' feet. He's told them that someone's going to betray him. This is at the Last Supper. And now what John does, which is different than any other gospel writer, he takes several chapters and expands upon the teachings that Jesus does right before he dies. These are called the farewell discourses. Okay, so this is number seven of eight farewell discourses that John records for us. 
And so this is right at the end of his life. Then he's going to end at the end of chapter 16. And then chapter 17 is going to be a prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. And then he's going to be arrested in chapter 18 and then goes to his death. Okay, so you see, now the reason why this is important is that this is right at the end of Jesus' earthly life, okay? So as a human, verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said one to another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Uh, truly, uh, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and, it will be, and you will receive. That your joy may be full. Now, this is an interesting text, because here we have this confusion of the disciples, and I, I share some of their confusion on it. But Jesus then explains the high-level question here, what's going on. He explains the, the really important part, and this is what I want to point out here, is that he says, you will have joy. Your sorrow will turn to joy. Multiple times in this text, he is saying that those who follow Christ will be joyful people. Everybody. He's not saying, okay, you emotional people, all right, you sentimental types, you know, the ones who cry at the Hallmark movies, okay, you know, with the same plot line and, and every movie, it doesn't matter, okay, you, you cry at it, okay, you, you, you emotional, sentimental people, you're going to have joy, right? He doesn't say that to one specific group of people. He says everybody. Everybody who follows Christ, so even, even the tough dudes here, right, okay, the guys who, you know, are, are, you know, they would never, ever cry at a commercial or a movie or anything, maybe a football game, but not a movie, right, okay, even those dudes, you will have joy if you follow Christ. You see, it's promise. It's not saying, well, you know, maybe you will, or it's not saying that if, if you get in touch with your emotional side or anything. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you will have joy. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now, for sure, there are seasons of greater and lesser joy. Um, I'm not saying that this is you just always have to be extraordinarily happy. If there's a scale of 1 to 10 on the joy scale, you know, like in order to be you know, considered a true Christian, you've got to be a 10. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, one, one person I heard illustrate it this way. He said this. He said, you know, just as trees are not always in blossom, so will there be times when joy seems absent. 
But for the believer, the root system is always at work, and joy is coming back as soon as leaves return to the tree each spring. I like that imagery, that, 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 that joy is always working in the root system. And there might be times where, you know, it's not blossoming because of whatever's going on, but th- it's coming back. And there's a season where then the leaves bud and, and bring forth the fruit once again here. And so joy is, is promised to Christians. Okay, so you say, great, okay, I've understand joy, it's rising above circumstances, sounds good, I understand that it comes from and flows from God, it's not something that I can just build it myself, and now you say in order to find joy, I need to make sure that I understand that it, I'm a Christian, right, okay, because joy is uh, a promise to Christians. What does it mean to be a Christ follower or a Christian? We repent, right, we repent of our sins, we ask God to forgive us of our sins, and we follow him, right? Okay, uh, we could look back in chapter 15 where love and obedience are tied to this, but, uh, but for time's sake, we'll just leave it here is that joy is promised to Christians, all right? So that still doesn't totally answer our question that we've raised this morning though, right? Okay, there's still a little bit of a nuance there that maybe we're thinking like, okay, that's great. I understand this theoretically, how, right? Okay, this is, this is the next question. So it, 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 as, we, as we start rounding this out, let me just say this, is that in hopefully the answer to that question is that this, joy is found in treasuring Christ. Okay, joy is found when we treasure Christ. Now, we're not talking about forced feelings here. There will be times of sorrow. This is the reason why I wanted you to see John 16. Did you notice that the imagery, the illustration that Jesus uses here, he says, I'm going away and you're going to have sorrow, but it will be turned to joy. And then in verse 21, he pivots right away and Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Now, that's an important line that Jesus gives there. He chose his words very carefully because if you were to trace throughout the, all the Gospel of John particularly, it's in other Gospels as well, but very particularly in the Gospel of John, you would find that the hour is a very important theological designation for Jesus' death on the cross, okay? Do you remember, and way back in the beginning, uh, the wedding of Cana, you remember when they ran out of water, what ran out of wine, and Jesus' mother comes to him and says, "Hey, they're without wine. This is an embarrassment. You need to help them." What was Jesus' response? He says, "My hour has not come." Right? Multiple times, Jesus will say, "My hour is not here." But here, using this illustration here, uses the same verbiage. And I believe it's making the connection here, saying there's a woman that's going to give birth, and she has sorrow because her hour has come. Now, it's interesting. Um, uh, most of you know that uh, the, my wife and I, we, we adopted our children, right? Okay. But you know what's really interesting? Maybe some of you know this as well. Uh, independently, both birth mothers asked us to be present when our children were born. And so I have the rare privilege and the rare honor as an adoptive dad that I was, I was there, I was present when both of my children 
were born. Uh, I was, uh, I, I cut uh, Isaiah's cord, okay? You know, that's a great honor as a dad, right? You know, I was supposed to do that for Mia, but the doctor came in at the last second, and you know, you know how doctors do this, right? You know, at the very last second, and you know, everyone else has done all the hard work, and you, 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 you know, many of you have been there, and they come in, and they get the baby, and then, you know, he's like, okay, you know, boom, 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 and he's out. Well, he didn't know that I was supposed to cut the cord, and you know, I wasn't going to elbow my way up to the front, okay? So, you know, I didn't get to do that, but the point is, is I was there. I was there when they were born. I could tell you stories of when I missions trips with medical teams where I got roped in, and uh, they said, hey, we got some people uh, giving birth here. I need your help. And so I was in the room when uh, uh, some babies were brought into this world. So my point is this, and many of you were there, okay, all right, many of you are saying, Jeremy, even with your experiences, you just need to stop talking because you don't know what you're talking about, right? Okay, because you've really been there, ladies. And so, but there's this moment that there is a lot of pain, okay? And there is a, a lot of suffering, and there is sorrow, and there is a lot of what did you do to me statements coming out, right? Okay, there is a lot of this going on, and it's a little tense there for a few minutes, okay? There's sorrow there. But it says in the text here, it says that the baby then comes. And then there's joy. It says in verse 21, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has born into the world. Now, you need to understand something. It says she doesn't remember it. It doesn't say that it's gone. It doesn't say all the pain's gone. It doesn't say, oh, everything's great now. Everything's awesome. It's just the joy of the baby being born just makes you just focus on that than all the pain that is still present. That's an important analogy here, what Jesus is talking about. When he goes away, there's still going to be some pain, but he's coming back, and he says, uh, you, you're going to have me, and you're going to be with me, and, and theologians differ on what he means by this, whether or not he's talking about when he comes back eventually, or whether when he resurrects from the dead, or he's talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry. It really doesn't matter. It's just saying that we have Jesus here with us, and that's what we celebrate at the table. He's not present in the bread or in the juice here, but he's symbolically and spiritually present with us. We have Jesus. And so this is why he's saying your, your sorrow is turned to joy. So the presence of a baby doesn't remove all the pain for the mother, but the baby does overshadow the pain in such a way that joy is predominant. So therefore, what Jesus is teaching in this text here is that when we treasure Christ above all, we have great joy. And that, my friends, is the Christmas effect. When we treasure Christ above everything else, there is joy. No matter what circumstance we're going through, no matter how difficult things are, no matter how frustrating life seems to be, that when we treasure Christ above all else in our lives, there is joy. And you need to understand, we rejoice in whatever we find beautiful or satisfying. Even the most stoic people in the world will crack a smile and jump for joy about something in their life, okay? So whatever we treasure the most, whatever we find most beautiful or satisfying, that's what we rejoice in. And look at verse 22. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart's will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from me. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Nobody can take this joy of treasuring Christ. 
No matter your health, no matter the financial instability, no matter the circumstances of this world, nothing, Jesus says, nothing will take our joy from you. Now, I, I got to go down this path just a little bit longer here because Jesus is using this analogy of, of the lady, uh, the woman giving birth, and this is right about him saying that he's going to die, okay? And he's going to die. This is about him leaving, and he's going to die for their sins and our sins. So here's one question I want to raise. Have you ever wondered why we don't really know where the tomb is. I mean, there's, there's a couple theories. There's Garden's tomb, and then there's one inside the city walls, and, but we don't really, really know for sure. Uh, many years ago, several years ago, I was able to go to Israel, and I visited these places, and they make compelling arguments, but the reality is everyone says over there, we don't really know for sure. Has it ever struck you as odd? Like, I mean, this would have been a pretty important thing for us to remember, right? I mean, the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I can go through a lot of famous graves, right? When I lived in, in Rhode Island, my wife and I, we lived in Rhode Island for three years. And one of the things that we love to do is, because I love history, is we would love to go to historical sites. And, and one of the things that I love to do, and maybe it's kind of morbid, I don't know, but I would go to these cemeteries, right? And I would see the cemetery of these famous people. I remember going to visit William Bradford's cemetery, okay, his grave. I remember finding in that same cemetery a cenotaph to Adoniram Judson, who was buried at sea, and who was a famous uh, a missionary to, to Burma. I remember taking, visiting people to presidential, there's John Adams' grave, and there's John Quincy Adams' graves, and of course, down in Illinois, you have Abraham Lincoln. I've been to all these, and so we know where these graves are at, and we can go, and we can honor the person. Wouldn't it make sense for Christians to have that for Jesus, right? So why is it that that was lost? Why is it that we don't know where that is? Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. There's times where my kids will go away for a week at Grandma and Grandpa's house in Michigan. And the house seems quiet, right? And I'll walk down the hall, and I'll see Isaiah's room, and I'll see Mia's room. And you know what I do often? I go in the room, and they're gone. And I just think about them. Thank you, Jesus, for them. You know, the empty room, when we don't have the child, takes on greater significance to us. I mean, there's times where people have lost a child, and they just leave the room exactly the way it is, in honor of their child. You see, when we don't have the child, the room, the empty room, becomes much more meaningful to us. But every other day, when I'm walking down the hall, I'm not feeling very sappy about my kids when I look in the room. Usually, I'm saying, they got to clean this thing, all right? <laughs> but I'm not feeling this, like, warmth in my soul about going into the room and just staring around. Look, Why? Because the kids are present. We have them. The same is true with Jesus. We have them. We don't need the empty tomb. We have them. You're saying, well, maybe, is this, is this a Christmas message or an Easter message, Jeremy? Well, really, they're tied together, right? And so we have this, this beautiful reminder that when he says, you have me, so you will rejoice. 
That's the Christmas effect, is that we were reminded that Jesus came, and we have him, and so we can have great joy because of Christ. John the Baptist, when he was in Elizabeth's womb, and he met Jesus for the first time, what does the Scripture say? It says the baby leapt in her womb for joy, is what it says. You see, when we have in the presence of Christ, and we recognize that Christ is with us, and we have him on a day-to-day basis, it should cause tremendous joy. So, what Jesus is saying here is when we treasure Jesus above all, really nothing can rob us of our joy. So when we treasure Jesus above all, nothing can rob us of our joy. As I land the plane here, let me give you three fast reasons why here. Because Number one, because Jesus loves us like no one else can, right? And so he is completely, 100% aware of every fault that you have. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you have done, right? Okay? He knows everything about you. And yet, and yet, the Scripture says He loves you. I mean, no one can love us the way Jesus does. No one can. There's no human. Our spouses can't. There's no one else. Our children can't. Only Jesus can love us this deeply. And so that should cause us to treasure him and say, you, you have to be first in my life. I have to follow your commands. I have to obey you and honor you because you love me deeply and I love you. So when we treasure Jesus above all, nothing can rob us of our joy because Jesus loves us like nobody else. But secondly, because Jesus truly has what is best for us in all that he does. How do I know that? Remember Hebrews 12? I showed you at the beginning of this message. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how I know he has your best interest in mind. What we're going to do here in a few minutes here and break the bread and have the juice here, symbolically reminding us of the sacrifice that Jesus did for us, that tells us that he loves us greater than anyone can love us. And that tells us that he has what is best in uh, our best always at his heart. He knows what is best. So if he orchestrates events that are challenging in your life, you may not understand it, and I may not get it, but we can be sure that it is not to harm us. That causes me joy. When I think about difficulties, and I think about all this stuff, and I think about the incarnation, I think about Christ coming to this earth, and he's willing to do everything for us, that gives me great joy, tremendous joy. There's one other reason here, and that is this, because only Jesus can give us what we truly need, and that is salvation. So when in our darkest hour, we can joyfully cling to this reality, that only Jesus can bring salvation. So we go back to the Christmas effect. We go back to how should the incarnation affect us. Well, it really should affect joy every day in our lives because it should cause us to treasure Christ above everything else because we have the Son. Psalm 96 says that the trees rejoice at the coming of God. The trees rejoice at the coming of God. If that is true, should we not rejoice even more in the presence of God? That's the Christmas effect, joy in the presence of God. If we believe that the incarnation happened and its intended purpose is to save us from our sins, shouldn't we be the most joyful people in Dane County? Because what Jesus did for us. 